Well, I was thinking uh, as I was preparing for this recording, one one would get the impression uh, with this interview that basically when it comes to the uh, male side of our species, all I do is uh, interview people with uh, British accents, which uh, we'll see. I don't know if I should keep that streak up or, or if, I, if I need to work on breaking it. Maybe I'll... Uh, no, definitely keep it up. Oh, that's maybe I'll get a Canadian in here. Just, I'll keep it in the Commonwealth. But uh, get a slightly different accent. Yeah, you know, you know that reminds me. Or, or in a street. The, yeah, that reminds me. I was in, uh, I was flying home from Charlotte of all places, and I met a, uh, I met a French Canadian, and uh, we were talking through stuff, and I had never realized, you know, well, never realized. I mean, if I thought about it, I would intuitively, but like, man, that was kind of a problem when, uh, when, when the British sort of like took over Canada, and the French were freaking the fuck out over there but uh it's it's you know i guess quebec wants to separate every now and then but it seems to have worked out and so my 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 question to someone who at least you know every day is like around uh you know you're there in london around people like do the french canadians ever come up what's like the position on them never um you know you know generally the i i think people don't really know or care that they exist too much <laughs> mm, that's fair that's fair i, I I, I don't, yeah, I don't think that there's much. Much going on. You know, well, it'd be the equivalent, me being a uh, an American, if you asked me, like, what what do you think about Indianans? And I would be like, I I don't know. They they paid their taxes? Yeah. I, I got nothing. I guess they have a, <laughs> uh, they have a, some car race up there or something. But yeah, okay. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. All right. Well, why don't you, uh, with that out of the way, why don't you introduce yourself briefly? So I'm Javad Malik. I'm uh, currently a security advocate at Alien Vault. Uh, before that, well, you know, as you know, Kote, I was uh, working at 451 as a analyst um, within the security group. So not so not in the same area as you were. Um, and uh, before that, I spent well nearly all of my career in uh, as a practitioner of some form or another. Uh, in information security, mainly in the in the financial services area uh, in, here in London. Oh yes, very nice. How how long have you been there in London? You've been there all your life. Are you, are you one of these natives? Yes, all my life, all my life. What what what's it like to be like? I mean, I mean, I know what it's like to be like. I'm from Austin, motherfucker. Like I was born down here. Like, what's it like to be a native Londoner? Is that like, uh, is that a thing, or do, does anyone care? You know, I, th- I think the thing out, um, uh, the, the thing about British people generally is that we, you know, unlike I suppose Americans and um, uh, even even a lot of other countries, we're not terribly patriotic or or very in in terms of like in your face. I mean, I think everyone's proud of where they're from and what have you. But, you know, no one's really in your face about I'm from London and I'm better than you. Mm. Um, London's a real big melting pot and everyone kind of like gets on really well. Unless you're like one of those rude boy gangsters with, walking around with like, you know, a little pen knife in your back pocket. And then it's like down to your postcode. I'm like, you know, north of the river and I'm from the N9 area or, or whatever. And, and, and that's it. So you call those rude boys. Is that like a chav or is the era of chavs over? Yeah, ch- chav is kind of like the, 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 the current thing. I think rude boys is what I, I, me and my friends used to call them when we were in college or what have you. And, and chav came sort of like afterwards. Right, right, right. Now, now, last question on this. I'm always interested in these topics. So, so I, I, I've, been, I've been curious about two things in my head recently about like British culture. The first one, which we don't need to address, is like what is – British comedy and humor. I heard like Michael Palin talking about that yesterday. And so I was like, 
I mean, there's something there, but it'd be interesting to get an analysis of what it is. But never mind that. That's just a little dessert for some other time. But why do you think it is that, like, uh, British people aren't hyper-patriotic? Like, and, and, and you know, you're right. Like, compared to Americans, like, it is, like, uh, there's a certain humbleness. But it's sort of like, I mean, it's there must have been something that happened because, like, Britain, over thousands of years, kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know... It seems like there's there's sort of a lot to be patriotic about, and and one would be that way. But I don't know. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just an interesting thing that uh, the uh, the Britain British attitude that I know from popular culture of like old British attitude seems like it'd be all over that in its own funky little way. But nowadays everyone's pretty nice <laughs> and humble. But uh, what do you think? Yeah. Why, why do you why do you think the British character of not being all like uh, you know, a stiff upper lip of patriotism doesn't prevail nowadays. Um, I, that's a real, that's a real deep question for for a warm up question. I, I have, I must say. Um, I, to be honest, I think you know there isn't it at an institutional level. Like in schools, we don't really have the national anthem. Um, you know, we don't really plant the flag outside our houses or it, it, on a lot of like our public buildings in invisible locations and what have you. So, so there's not a, a great deal, I think overtly um, because I think it, it's, it's again, that, that kind of like that British way of keeping your emotions, you know, un, under the covers, you know, mm. there's no need to be like overly uh, overt about everything you say and do. It's just how it is. And um I suppose it links back to a lot of the characteristics that, you know, when, when you talk about comedy, um, you know, there's a lot of irony, there's a lot of sarcasm, there's a lot of dry wit, there's a lot of like uh, self-deprecating humor that's that's quite prevalent. So mm. I think that that all comes across. But make no mistake about it. When push comes to shove, they're the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's it seems it seems like there's just a very, uh, very thick drapery that sort of like uh, some some pride is not hiding, but it's politely uh, not even slumbering, but it's politely sort of like staying out of your face behind. And if you can penetrate that curtain, I mean, that's I don't know if this is the case in in, in, in this British thing, but often sort of like dryness and self-deprecating and, and sort of uh, wit is 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 a uh it's either a shield or again just a polite way of not being in your face but you can kind of peel behind it and be like fuck yeah we invented monty python suck on that world so you know there is there is a certain amount of pride depth <laughs> but but i guess i guess what you're saying is when you watch that stirring speech in master and commander i guess ironically given by an australian where he's like you know this ship is is britain england is under threat of invasion and though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. This ship is England. You don't get you don't get all the tinglys or anything. You're just like, hmm, good performance. The uh, set design is very realistic. <laughs> no, I think I think everyone gets the well, every British person gets the tinglys to a degree, but they they just don't get up and start applauding it in the in the middle of the film in the theater. <laughs> now that ironically would be a very British thing to do compared to Americans <laughs> to give it give a movie a standing <laughs> ovation. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, that uh it's always a fun landmine strewn discussion to talk about uh cultural things, but I think I think we pulled it off. We might have we might have offended some of the Quebecois, but you know, given what my name is, I think I have a little bit of latitude. And, uh, and and things like that. But so, uh, you know, security, 
and nominally the topic here. Now, I don't know a lot about security, my sort of famous opening gambit for any topic, but I was thinking the, the first question, like what would you say is like, uh, it doesn't have to be the most, but the most interesting sort of top three controversial things in security nowadays. That's that's a very like genuine topic, right? Like not just sort of like, you know, it's dumb to do this and people do it a lot, but something that's like, something that's like a little like, like nutty, but but is kind of important that people debate a lot. Yeah, so I think there's two ways of approaching this this particular question. One one thing is just what's nutty about security and the bad practices that people seem to you know adopt uh, for for whatever reason. Um, but I think the more important question is like the role of security and and how it it might even quote unquote has failed technology in in many regards in that technology has taken over such a large part of everyone's lives and and it's individuals and it's the way companies operate and it's even the way uh, governments rely on it in this day and age and security has got such a fundamental part to play in 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 all of that to to making sure that things work as they should and they're good and often this case it doesn't so, you know, some of the things that, you know, we, we, we've seen a lot that's really visible and raw at the moment is like the Internet of Things, for example. Any smart device that's out there is uh, usually woefully insecure and has, has a lot of issues. And we've seen it being exploited, um, you know, in, in recent times in, in, in many different guises. Um, then, then there's a the whole issue of like uh, you connected what to the Internet? which is a, a play on the, the IoT, but that's really falls into your more uh, critical national infrastructure where, you know, you have like uh, power grids and water supplies and all those kinds of things just, you know, connected on the internet. No one knows why, default credentials um, and, and all that kind of thing, which is really, you know, something that people need to start looking at really seriously. Um, the, the third aspect is really, um, you know, just because you can, it doesn't mean you shouldn't. And and uh, what, what I mean by that is just because your social media allows you to put up every aspect of your life or there's so much story freely available that as a company, you just find it easier and more convenient to save and store all of your data doesn't mean you should, because that creates a security nightmare in its own regard. And like, how long do you archive stuff for? Uh, when do you delete it? What if someone picked up this data up and what could they piece together about you? So, you know, I suppose these are the three top issues that that come to mind when when you talk about security. Mm. Yeah, no, then that's good. And and it kind of like uh, it kind of helps. uh, I don't know if crystallizes the right word, maybe sandstones in my mind, like like security is always a source of like uh, amusement and befuddlement and pain. And then and then also, to be fair, extremely awesome benefits (laughs) in, in, in my own life. And kind of as as you're going over that, I was thinking like there's there's sort of three areas that at least in the technology world, I don't know about like physical security and you know bodyguards and stuff, but I assume it's similar. There's sort of like three ways of thinking through what to do in security, and the first one is the obvious one. It's just like tactics, like you should encrypt your shit, or like have a good password, or we should have a firewall and we need to patch things. Like it's the uh, to some extent, it's like what vendors sell and it's the tools and, and stuff you should do. 
And then uh, the second one, which I remember, I, I, su- I suppose, like, if you're a CISO or whatever, this is still a big deal, but it's like, you're supposed to do risk management. And and this is kind of like where security stuff gets into that, uh, as as people would say in the DevOps world, the it's not about the tools, it's about the culture stuff, which is always a delightful conversation, because it's like, well, if I take away your automation software, is it still about culture? But, you know, anyways, uh, it's sort of like, you know, civilization isn't about toilets that flush well, and you could take away toilets that flush well, and then we'd have a big problem. But uh, so you've got like your risk management thing, which which I guess is sort of like the enterprise version of I think what the next the next thing is, as you were kind of going over is like, this tension between usability and like hackability you know kind of like you're saying like uh like right before this call like uh i forgot to turn off the fish pump in this room and uh so i used my internet of things wemo device to turn off the fish pump and i'm sure like some security person is just like shaking their head that i'm using this device because i'm i'm you know my fish tank is going to be mining bitcoins or something but it see it seems like the problem that security people have, like tactics are fine. That's just, you know, get the tools and do the thing. But man, those other two things re- seem really hard <laughs> to to do, especially the last one. Yeah, they're, they're incredibly hard. And, uh, you know, it, it, even things like risk management, like 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 you alluded to, it conceptually, it's, it's a mature-ish discipline. And you'd think that it would be easier to do. But man, is it is it hard? Because like every company is so different. And the the analogy I like using is like, well, how hard is it to cook a meal? And that's okay if you're just cooking for yourself. But then what if you have guests around? And what if someone's diabetic or lactose intolerant or, you know, doesn't doesn't like Chinese food or, you know, or is a vegetarian? Everything starts to become very complicated very quickly. Um, and, and that's how I see a lot of like risk management in the security world. It's just like people trying to apply a, a uh, uh, sort of like broad principles across everywhere, and what you end up with is just kind of like a McDonald's Happy Meal version of of risk management, uh, which isn't really good in the long run. Mm, but you get a free toy sometimes, so that's you get like a free RSA uh, token to to carry around in your backpack. Yeah, I think I still have one of those banging around somewhere. That, that yeah, a free toy that connects to the internet. Well, you know, you know, it occurs. I mean, t- tell me, tell me how people deal with this because I uh, only vaguely have a notion of what I'm about to say, but I find it an intriguing topic, which is like um, if something that in, in the, in the topic of risk management, because this implies something like the following, like if something is 99.99% secure, that means 0.1% of the time it will not be secure. And I think, I think people think that 99.9 means 100%, but in fact, it does not. <laughs> so it's almost like you're not saying that something is secure. You're saying that like, well, you won't get fucked over too much, <laughs> but every now and then something terrible is going to happen. And of course, when something terrible does happen, it's not like you get like a get out of jail free card because you're like I said 0.1% of the time something bad would happen and and like so that is like you know whether it's uh I don't know maybe election predictions that people freak out about like this this notion of like probability doesn't mean 100% is something that 
I would think in the security world is really difficult and annoying to deal with. And so, so like, how do people deal with that 0.01% when they're trying to uh, not get fired, essentially? Yeah. So, so th- th- this delves really into the, that, that risk world. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, we, we, I think the security industry has been trying for a while to try to change the understanding of businesses to say, hey, when we say do this, that, the other for security reason, that not it doesn't mean you'll be secure. It just means we'll bring the risk levels down or the likelihood of you being exploited down to a quote unquote acceptable level or within your 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 risk appetite. Uh, you know, there's nothing ever is going to be 100 percent secure. Uh, so. Then the question is, so, so, so it's like, you know, it's a trick question when, when a CEO or, or an exec says, um, are we secure? Or if we do this, will we be secure? That's the wrong answer. That's the wrong question to be asking. It, it should be like, if we do this, can we bring it within our tolerance level? Yes or no. OK, we can do this, bring it within our tolerance. And then the second part is, hey, if we do get exploited, what are we going to do about it? And I think that's really where the when we talk about um, the, when we look at just general trends and I still pretend to be an analyst every now and then I look at, you know, what uh, what where all the industry is going and where all the marketing is going and, you know, what sort of features a lot of the vendors are developing. Um, a lot of it really is going into um, detection and response uh, capabilities. Uh, so that's saying, hey, we've done pretty good job. I mean, like pretty much as good as possible on the let's fix stuff up front uh but now let's how do we how do we react once something does go wrong and the first thing you need to do is to know when something goes wrong um and the second thing after that is like well okay something's gone wrong now what's our playbook how do we how do we fix it how Mm. do we carry our business on how do we you know let people know that hey this happened let's let's get back to uh, a usable state so so that's really where a lot of the conversation is heading. And and so so to that end, I mean, you've already provided a little bit of that, the answer to this with your um, detecting when, when something bad happens and having a plan to respond to it. Like, like if you were going into an organization and like they had nothing, what would be like the baseline that, that you would lay out as far as like what their security plan was? Like, let's just assume they're like a normal company, you know, they got an internet site and uh, they use computers and um, I don't know, maybe they have some sort of interaction with their supply chain where they send like EDI or whatever it is the kids do nowadays. Like, what would be your, uh, your sort of like plan to put things into place? Oh, that, that's a really, uh, that, that's, a, that's a tricky question. And I say it's a tricky question because it will vary, but based on uh, the company. Can you can you tell by the way I used to be a consultant at one time? Because that's a great <laughs> I, way to make. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know anything about that. That that's uh, you know the old the old uh, you know looking at someone's watch and telling them what time it is. Never never done that myself. <laughs> never happens. I, I think it's it's um, it's pretty uh, standard. The approach broadly is standard in the sense that. Step one, put in place some protective controls. So, you know, that would be like, you know, if antivirus on, on endpoints, some, some firewalls or, or whatever, like, you know, the, those basic fundamental things, is everything patched and up to date? Are you running any illegal software? Get rid of that, get a fully licensed version. You know, so, so that kind of thing, just just putting those in place, just because they'll, they'll you know, they're, they're fundamental technologies and they'll block like, you know, majority of the your every 
everyday casual threats that are out there. Um, the second stage is really then it's I, I'd, I'd move away from the tech, hardcore technology and say like, okay, do you understand what your business looks like? What what are your critical assets or where where which process your your, your business functionality? And and then do kind of like a risk assessment on that. So then you can say, okay, well, here's our customer records and these are like super sensitive because they're our customers and there's all these regulations and here's our payment um, sort of processing area. So we need to focus on that. And everything else is kind of like, uh, that's a bit like, you know, admin and what have you. So so then you start putting your focus on those areas and say, okay, well, what can we do to beef up the controls on these based because they're higher risk? Uh, so then you're going to put in some things to help you try and detect if anyone's accessing it. So, you know, a lot of the times, I mean, you can home grow a solution as well. You can script something together to pull out the logs or, or you can get a, and, and there's some open source tools available as well that that will do it for you or you can buy buy a product that will like say pull all all your logs like a sim type thing or what have you um alert you when something goes wrong um and then do you, do you have a plan to to go back and uh, uh you know fix it when when it does get fired um i i think from from a business point of view you you need to have a defensible position at the end of the day to say hey if if we do get breached uh, can we actually stand in front of our shareholders or our customers and say we we took reasonable measures to to do so? And uh, you know that that will vary, and you're not always going to convince everyone. But you know ha- having those steps in place really goes a long way. So so that that uh, I guess I sort of know a bit of the answer to this, but that raises an interesting question: like, is all of this just about breaching, as you say, or is there like is there more to it than just we don't want to be breached and then we want to know how to recover from it after that happens. So, I mean, I, I, I just keep, I, I suppose I keep using breach as, as the example, but it could be anything, any un, unwanted incident within the organization should, should be covered under this. So that could be ranging from an insider that's, you, you know, you, you fired an employee and suddenly he's on social, he's still got access to your Twitter account and he's posting all sort of like, you know, horrible things on your, on your, on your social media. Um, you know, that's a, that's a security incident. Um, you know, so do you have a process? So that can be detected very easily because all of a sudden your Twitter's going to light up like a Christmas tree and everyone's going to be, uh, you know, yeah, laughing right, at you right. and Buzz, Buzzfeed's running articles, but then, okay, what's you've detected it. So what's your recovery plan? How are you going to regain control of that Twitter account? Do you have a contact at Twitter that can do that? Um, do you have any, you know, was there anything in the contract that forbid the, the employee from taking the Twitter account with them and claiming it's theirs? Um, and then, you know, what statements are you going to issue to, to customers to explain to them what happened and why they, why they should continue to trust you? Um, so, so as a, as an example, but it, but it could also be like the cleaner comes in and unplugs your server to plug in the, the vacuum cleaner mm. and, uh, you know, oh, all of a sudden we've got no availability. I mean, that falls under security as well. So um, what, what are your um, availability plans or, you know, I mean, once I was working at this at this bank and one branch, um, the, the sewage um, sort of like pump broke or something and the toilets got flooded and there was a horrible smell in the entire branch. So they had to shut it down. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> now, that's not something that anyone really thinks about. That's not something that anyone really plans for, but it's an availability issue. So, so how do you manage that? And this is where it's like, you know, do your risk assessments and, and figure out where are your critical 
sort of like points and then say anything could happen. It could be a breach. It could be, you know, a nation state sending a spy over who, who, who glides down out of a plane and hacks into your computers. Or it could be something as simple as like, you know, your, your, your sewage pipe bursting. Um, you know, the, the impact is kind of like the same in, in terms of like the, the, the business running. Uh, what are you going to do to detect it? What are you going to do to recover from it? And how are you going to carry on making more money? So, so to so, sort of delve on this point more, right? Uh, like, I don't know what other analogies to use, but like if we look at uh, uh, government and their spy agencies and their militaries, both of them have like a dual role. One of them is like, let's call it the uh, the offensive role by, and that I don't, I guess sometimes it's oftentimes it's morally offensive, but to attack people, to actively go out and like take lands or enforce your position or to spy on them and kind of like, you're more like a- actively doing something. And then each of them has a, uh, a defensive position where you're defending people doing the same to you, or you have like counterintelligence where other people are spying on you. And so you're trying to like fuck that all up. And so, I mean, it seems to me that in the IT world, security is pretty much all about the second. Like, like to put it in sort of like enterprise terms, and I don't mean this to be demeaning at all, just definitional, like the security function of a company isn't there to increase the revenue or grow the, the markets that the company is in. Now, as you say, it's there to ensure that it can, that like it has uptime and things like that, but it's not sort of like, unless what you're selling is security, but let's take that off the table because that's too fractally, uh, mm-hmm. but like you know, the security people aren't going to like create new businesses or add to that, like say software development team would, or, or do you think that's unfair? And like the security team, like is there to like be generative and and grow things? Oh no, I I completely agree. Um, it's, it's a cost center. It's a bit like buying insurance policy or something. You don't really want to do it a lot of the times. Uh, but, but you just do it because you have to, um, I mean, you know, there's some, you know, you could spin it in a few ways and say, well, okay, if you're, if if you have a good security posture, you haven't had any breaches as a company, maybe it adds value because companies trust you more. Or a customer, right, trust right, right, right. Like, 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 if you were like in 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 banking, like, you know, I mean, that's almost a huge part of what banking is, <laughs> is, exactly. is that they're secure <laughs> in all, yeah. in all air, in all areas of business. So, so yeah, no, that is a good point. There are, there are non-tech businesses where security is an incredible feature and value differentiation of what they do. So the security department is, uh, is very important for, uh, for that. Yeah. Oh, for some reason, Suri thinks I was talking to her. Speaking of security problems, <laughs> got an uninvited guest. Huh. Well, uh, and you know, and, and another thing, well, first of all, uh, I, I was just looking this up. It turns out that Russell Crowe is actually a New Zealander. He has just lived most all of his life in Australia. So I apologize to all the New Zealand people out there. I know, I know the difference between Australia and New Zealand, always a, a hot button issue. So, you know, full credit due to, uh, as I understood, some suburb of, of Wellington. So, so good job. Got, you well, got that well, guy. Well, you know, the, the uh, people, uh, you, you probably offended New Zealand more because they were like, no, we were glad to get rid of him. He was a popular <laughs> Australian <laughs> entertainment. Exactly. <laughs> Could be the case. Who knows? You know, it, it helps balance out Kim.com and Peter Thiel being uh, oh. citizens there. 
But uh, anyhow, uh, so, you know, you were going over something that, you know, is sort of like a broad, uh, especially for uh, the the watch lookers and time tellers of consultants that that I, I don't know that I've sort of noticed over the past 10 years. And, and this comes up a lot in, in my area of like software development and the DevOps area. And it seems like a lot of and, and the security area, a lot of what we, we nerds have been trying to do is sort of like go over to the business side and be like, hey. It's computers, man and woman. You should understand how computers work. <laughs> and and like, <laughs> like if you know the basics of even consumer-grade computer stuff, like it won't be such – the IT department won't be such a goddamn mystery that, that we're always struggling for. And like, you know, for example, security has some good examples of like uh, if your account gets hacked, you care about that, right? Like and – and even even on like a lower level, right? Like if you're over on uh, Facebook and you don't properly categorize some post you have, someone you went to junior high with might be insulted and start disliking you and yelling at you or something because you made fun of them. And so, you know, it's it seems like those that understanding of how computers work. I don't know. Maybe maybe the young people nowadays know, but like, man, we spend a lot of time just explaining to non nerd people like how computers work <laughs> and like, and, and, and like, and as an example of that, like I was reading, I've been reading this, uh, this new book by Mark Schwartz, who was a, a CIO of a government agency and now works at AWS. And you can tell he's had to spend a lot of time being like, you know, if you want to make software and you basically just write some huge upfront requirements and you deliver it after two years, and then your government contractor is no longer involved and you assume you can just like run it like you would a car that doesn't work. And, and it's just like so frustrating that you would have to explain that to people over and over again. But I, I assume, I don't, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I assume the same happens in security where it's just like, yeah, you should, uh, you should have a better password. I don't, I don't know how to help you at this point. If you'd asked me this, like, um, a few years ago, I would have been absolutely, man, you're, you're right on the money. Um, I think this is before I joined four, five, one. And I think joining 451, I, I kind of like changed my, my view on this a lot in the sense that while it's not untrue, a lot of people don't understand security or technology as well as what they could. Um, the, th the I think that the, the, the opposite is also true that security people or technologists don't really take time out to understand the business for which mm, they, yeah. they are working. So uh, one, one of my friends, he's a CISO, and he goes to these, um, uh, you know, security, chief security officers, sort of roundtable meetings and what have you. And one of his favorite questions is like, hey, how many of you uh, actually listen to the shareholders calls and know what your CEO has promised them? And he said it's surprising how few of them actually say that they do. Or have you read your company accounts? Do you know how to read your company and account accounts? Um, so, so, so the, the point being is that if you don't understand intimately how a business is run or, or you don't understand how your product is made and the cost of, of the, making the product and how it's sold and your go to market strategy, then how do you know where you're actually putting in security controls or where they're most needed? Um, so I think it's a failing on, on, or, or an educational sort of gap on both sides of the fence. Um, because I think if we could 
um, we, I, I use the royal we as in like technologists and security people could understand businesses better. Perhaps we'd be better at actually creating solutions for them that actually meets their need. Um, we, we were talking about this before um, I think we came on, on air and I, I, I recently shot a video with a friend of mine where I threw at him a bunch of security terms and I said, do you know what they mean? Um, and like, so like, what, what's a penetration test? What's PGP? Uh, what's SSL? You know, all, all these kinds of things. And not surprisingly, he didn't understand anything. Um, and, and, and that's how a lot of security people approach businesses. They, they talk about things They said, Hey, you're, you've got a SQL vulnerability injection floor, uh, you know, vulnerability on your website, or, you know, it's susceptible to, uh, cross-site scripting or parameter tampering. And the business guy sitting there thinking, well, okay, great. <laughs> how much money do right. you want? You know, what, what do I do? So, um, you know, a lot of times we can sort of make things easier by just like uh, making things easier to understand and then designing. I think secure by design is a big issue. Um, if if we have a web app that allows someone to choose a really crappy password, um, I'd, I'd point the finger on blame on, on, on the people who designed it and the security guy that signed that off as opposed to the user who then chose a crappy password. Mm. Because if they chose password one, the system should have said, hey, man, this is a really bad idea. Why don't you choose something stronger? And here's some guidelines on how you could choose something stronger. Uh, so, so you're missing out on an educational opportunity uh, because nothing makes a user feel worse than they get hacked. Uh, uh, and then they go to security and say, hey, hey, man, can you help me? And the first thing they get is a long lecture about, did you choose a secure password? Did you uh, include special characters? Did you reuse it on, on other sites? Did, why did you click on that link that came through on that email? Um, so, so they're made to feel twice as worse about themselves, and they're still none the wiser as to how to secure themselves better. I mean, I think, I think you know, to, to continue the metaphor of uh, Schwartz's book, which is called a, uh, a Seat at the Table, like, if you're going to sit at the table, you better have some table manners, and an appreciation of the food being served is also good. And, and I, th- I think that's right, is like the... Um, that that would be a fun thing to uh, let's call it a instructive jerky question, not the way I would ask it. To, to start asking people is like, you know, when's when's the last time you listened in on your company's quarterly calls? Which I think, or at least read some coverage of it to uh, understand what's going on. And it is, yeah. Both there's a what's the line? A pox on both your houses. <laughs> like, <laughs> like both sides have a lot of work to do, but it is, I am always like genuinely excited when I see executives uh, like speaking in terms of software and software development. And it's uh, ho- hopefully that'll pan out. That's good stuff. It's not just like ERP stuff that they, uh, mm-hmm. they go over all the time. Well, so uh, you, you know, I, the, on on a different topic, given given your your background, I always there's very few people who have uh, been industry analysts who are like um, no longer industry analysts, and so that that bias is removed from them. But like, what do you think the deal with being an industry analyst is? Is that a is that a good job? You know, I I'll be very honest. I I really enjoyed it um, because um, you you get to spend all your day chatting to really smart people by and large. And then uh, cribbing their ideas and mm, um, putting them the together, part. yeah. <laughs> and and then people saying, "Wow, this analyst really knows a lot." <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, um, but but I, I think it, it, there's value there because 
as an analyst, it's your full-time job to sit down and actually ponder over these things and, and look at these things and how the market's moving and who the, all the vendors are and where the money's moving, which, you know, not being an analyst, I just don't get time to do that anymore. So I appreciate it. Um, but in security, especially, I think when I, when I was as an analyst, it was just crazy. The, the, the amount of startups, the amount of different companies that are there and everything, it was just like, it, it burns you out as well. So, which, which is one of the reasons I left. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so what, like, career-wise, like, I, I often talk with people. I think there's going to be a cameo from my dog here, but uh, I always talk with people, and I try to give them like the advice of like, what is the, uh, what is the employee side of being an analyst? Like, sort of like you know, salary expectations and vacation and how you manage your work. Like, like, what, what would be your advice of like someone who's going to become an analyst and like how do they manage? their uh their career side of it you know like like just how do they manage what they negotiate for and what their expectations should be as far as like work and travel and all these things oh so i th- oh that that's a good one and um i, I wish i'd asked someone properly before i became one of them. <laughs> exactly but, um, that's why i always try to proactively tell people because <laughs> i had i had that i've i've had that same feeling where it's like oh I should have read the little book of like, so you want to be an analyst and uh, gotten some advice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it can be a brutal life and if, if you don't negotiate it well. Um, because I think analysts, analyst lives, uh, by and large, and I can't speak to all, for all analyst firms, but there's no real career path, so to say. Uh, you start off as an analyst and then maybe you're a senior analyst. Um, but, but that's kind of like it, or, or maybe you become a distinguished analyst. I, I don't know what, whatever the, the, but there's, there's nothing really that differentiates a, a junior from a senior to, to, to whatever a super analyst. Mm. So in, in that regard, I, I, uh, compared to a lot of, uh, other careers, uh, there's probably very little room for actual career progression or, or, or salary increase as you go on over the years, other than the, the nominal sort of thing. So I'd always say start, uh, from a salary perspective, negotiate hard, negotiate early um, right. to, to get something that you're comfortable. Don't think that, oh, I, this is a good enough salary for my first year and then year two, they're going to increase it because that probably won't meet your expectations. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a good point. I mean, I, I often describe to people that uh, why why I stopped being an analyst and, and their own advice is like, it's sort of like a dead-end job <laughs> in the sense of like, you get hired in to do something cool, but there's not unless you want to like go into like management and stop being an analyst. Uh, there's not really there's not really anywhere to go. So so I didn't think about it in those terms, but strategically, what that means is, uh, you know, negotiate for the best house on the cul-de-sac <laughs> if if you're not going to go anywhere. Yes, just assume yes. it's not going to be going up. So so what else? What else would you advise people? Like what is What's like the lifestyle you would tell people they should be expecting and, and what they should be doing? So I, I'd say definitely get clarification up front how much travel is expected um, and, and get that into the contract. So if you're I mean, some people, they they're really cool. They're flexible and they, they, they even want to travel to they want to go to all the conferences and they want to do all the all the all the, you know, sort of like things. But, you know, ha- have it in your mind, like, you know, if, depending on your personal circumstances, maybe 20 percent of the time you want to travel, but you want to spend the other three weeks, at, you know, of the month or, or whatever at home. Um, some people want are happy traveling 50 percent of the time. 
Um, so, so I think again, that's that's something that I'd I'd say like look at the firm and negotiate hard on that and uh, try to get that done. Uh, number three, I'd say is um, uh, yes, uh, as, I suppose closely linked to that is check out the expense policy and uh, how that works. So some 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 companies are great; they'll they'll um, re- reimburse you straight away. They have a very good slick. Um, <coughs> Um, sort of like booking process and what have you. Others will say, hey, you pay for everything and then we reimburse you. Mm. Uh, and then when it comes to reimbursing time, they, they might be really slow or worse still, they might say, hey, that's over the limit and we're not going to reimburse you for that or, or what have you, which which is always a horrible conversation and, and place to be in. So yeah, I'd yeah. say that that's kind of like part of the side. It's just like, you know, it's it's one less hassle that you need in your life. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a good point. And it, that's a good point of like, uh, well, I think this is what you're saying is like, figure out the expenses policy. <laughs> and and like, like how much wiggle yeah. room there is yeah. and things like that. And, you know, it's making me think of of another thing where it's sort of and 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 this could deceptively not seem to be on topic for for what I was talking about. But like understanding what the actual daily work is before you jump into it is probably key because like you know i've i've worked at uh red monk and 451 and i've interviewed at gartner and forrester several times because as i like to tell people you should probably i don't think i've done this at pivotal and it's sort of a testament to how much i like the job but probably at least once a year you should try to get a new job just to see what's going on and uh man i don't know about you but when i've talked with like the gartner people they're they're i don't know if they're showing off but they're like oh I have like four inquiries a day and uh, then I need to like fill my uh, my typing on a keyboard quota to do things. And it's like, holy shit, that sounds fucking exhausting. I don't know if I want to work there, which hopefully that won't come back to bite me in the ass one day if I have to go uh, groveling to Gardner for a job or whatever, if there's some sort of like apocalypse on my thought, thought lording. Um, and I think the Forrester people like are a little less like they seem to have a when I've talked with them, a pretty flexible quota. But then, you know, further down on the spectrum of, of uh, unstructuredness, like, you know, as as you know, at four five one, there was sort of like this. It was always it's always always difficult to like know what the expectations were. But it was basically like the way I would think about it is uh, on average, you should probably write point seven fifteen hundred word reports a week. <laughs> and, and if, and of course, of course, what I mean by that is you don't always write it, but like you should probably write a couple a month and so, you know, sometimes you can do more. And then there's sort of like, and it would be cool if you helped us sell some consulting and help the salespeople out, but that's not really too official, but it would actually be cool. <laughs> and then, uh, and then at Red Monk, it was just like, I'll talk to you 12 months later. And as, as James governor is always fun, you know, reminds me there actually was and is a lot more structure at red monk, but more of what to put on it is a lot of onus and in a good way is put on you to manage yourself. And kind of like we were saying with listening to the understanding, the table manners of the business, right? Like at least when I work there, the red monk approach was like, Hey, we hired you because you're smart and you know what you're doing. So we're going to judge you based on how much you help our our clients and uh, Red Monk. So you should do that. And here's some nudges in the right direction, but it's not like we're going to track things because we trust that you'll uh, you'll do a good job. So, I mean, that's like my little piece of advice is like if you want to have four to five 30 minute calls every day and then somehow figure out how to keep on top of things and also write, I think they maybe write like 
I think Gardner people might, might write 0.7 PDFs a month instead of every week. But uh, it's good to know that stuff going in because an analyst life can seem pretty easy from the outside or it can seem like that false busyness. Like, oh, I'm always so busy. I got to do all these things. But it's good to know what you're the soup you're getting yourself into. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And and I think just to, to add to that, I'd, I'd say once you figure that out, that baseline, um, just exercise extreme discipline and, and stick to it. Um, mm, yes. I, I think it's very easy to become a victim of your own success. If you suddenly find yourself one month with a bit of spare time and you put your hand up and say, hey, I'll help with a webinar here or I'll go and do that presentation there that very quickly becomes uh, an expectation. Oh, that's true. That's true. You got to do uh, some so, expectation so just, management. Well, well, before we wrap up uh, w- with, with a little, a little t- a quick fire round of small questions. Uh, oh man, I just had a question I was going to ask and I forgot it. That's too bad. Uh, but uh, so, yeah. so, so, you know, you work at uh, alien vault. That's, that's like, I'm sure the marketing people would would not like this, but you do a lot of stuff with like logs, right? Looking through logs. Is that S E I M or S I E M? I forget which way it is. Yeah, the sim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so, you so must that's one of the, the, the yeah. You you must know about this, but like, so in security, what's the deal with logs nowadays? Like, one, why are logs such a big deal? And then two, like, what are the the new and interesting sort of like the alpha grade stuff that's that's happening in logs that's fascinating? Or or they could be. Real, they could be really boring, but really valuable. Whatever those two, uh, those two quadrants are. Yeah, yeah. So, so logs are really valuable. I mean, the, the, the good thing about logs is that they they never really write, you know, uh, lie. Sorry, it's it's like my uh, one of my favorite quotes on a t shirt I saw once was a uh, p caps or it didn't happen. And uh, I I think that that sort of like sums up the the value of logs. Uh, where we are at the moment, though, in the enterprise is that. You know, people collect logs and then they don't know what to do with it or or, or they kind of have an idea. But then there's so many logs, they um, they don't know how to to go about it. So um, I suppose the, uh, the the thing is like the, the, where the shiny hotness is and where it's been heading for a long time is like, OK, what do you do with the logs and how do you drive value from it? So so it, it comes back down to that. Um, threat detection and response it's like okay if there's someone that's hacking into your company from the outside or an insider doing something that they shouldn't or you know some systems malfunctioning the evidence of that should be in the logs and you know in nearly every case it, it always is when you when you go through a breach afterwards and you say ah, oh, well you know it was in the logs but we didn't spot it so the, the first question is how do you spot uh, you know the, the 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 real things in there, and there's lots of approaches at the moment. There's like you know, um, you know, a few years ago, analytics was the the key word. Then it's like you know, now we've got a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence, um, and all of those have value, and all of those have a place in that. Um, I mean, I suppose the alien vault way is that what they do is say, hey, a sim on alone is is on its own is really limited. Uh, you have to feed it some logs and then it will just sit there. So the, the real value in a sim is you need correlation rules that say, hey, if we see this and this and this happening, then raise an alert for someone to do something with it. Uh, but even that is writing a correlation rule isn't easy unless you have awareness of the whole environment. So then they built capabilities around that to say, OK, 
let's go out and look for the assets that are out there. Let's categorize the assets. Let's look for uh, where the vulnerabilities are, lie. And then let's put, pull in some threat intelligence data as well. Um, and that enriches it. So that's the approach that we've taken at Alien Vault to try and like really get those high quality alerts up there. Um, and then, th- th- then it's like, okay, you're being hacked. Great. Now what do I do? Uh, call 911. Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, so, so, so that's where the, the response parts comes into it. And this is where I think the shiny hotness is in response is all around orchestration. Uh, how can you connect together different products and say, hey, if we see this happening, uh, you, Mr. Product over there, block this. So, if, you know, if, hey, here's, a, here's some outbound traffic that we don't like, Palo Alto block it right there and you know it can be done automatically orchestrated or like hey there's an endpoint over here let's fire off an alert to carbon black and they can like forensically just like isolate it or something like that and and that's kind of like where 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 it's going in in the the future but Mm. i suppose that's a long way of explaining what what i think logs do fundamentally no no that that, that's that like that last part is interesting of of you know it gets back to you have to respond to these things of the uh as 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 with all this any anything in computers that is i guess involves multiple components beyond maybe like uh your application and a database <laughs> like like those two things usually go well together it's kind of like like bread and uh, lunch meat or you know tempeh if you don't like lunch meat like we got we got that down with some condiments but once you involve all these other things it gets really complicated quickly, if not impossible. And so you have to orchestrate it. And so like going from detecting a threat to like automatically having your various things I see ad fours in airports, uh, like respond to it and shut it down probably is pretty complicated. Probably makes for a great briefing to a, uh, a, an analyst or like a two minute demo that this thing perfectly responded and did something. But in practice, it's probably very difficult to actually automate all that orchestration stuff. And then, you know, the other thing you pointed out, which is just like a constant source of innovation is, as you were saying, like contextualizing all this information, this dumb information that's out there, which that seems like a perennial problem of of anyone who deals with the output of computers, (laughs) just broadly, is to add intelligence to it. Well, so... And then, and then another, I mean, tell me if, if you know, I, I guess, I guess a lot of logs, like, just like in the, the operations world, like, they're often like the blood work of security. Like, you just kind of look through them to start detecting things that may or may not be going wrong. I don't know if they're like an MRI or an x-ray. Maybe that's more diagnostic, but it is, uh, I don't know. That's the analogy I always have in my head. Well, so here, I forgot to do this last episode. But I, I tried to come up, to, I'm stealing this from Tyler Cohen, if you ever listen to that podcast, but I think it's fun to do some little rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Feel free to like not answer it or, or answer briefly or go on as long as you want. And maybe there'll be some follow up questions, but are you ready for the, uh, the quick fire? Fair. All right. So first of all, I am ready. what, what was, what was that thing that Splunk bought a while ago? Was it uh, photon phantom? What, what's the deal with that? I'll pass on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. No, only for the reason that that Splunk is considered kind of like a competitor, and I and I, I I'm not an analyst anymore, so I can't say that I'm impartial in in everything I say. So, so my next question: If anyone's watched any of your videos, they'll see like a bunch of weights in the background. So, so what's your advice about uh, weightlifting? <laughs> 
What, uh, why would you do it? Like, how do you stick to it? What's, uh, what's your feel on that? What's your analysis of, uh, your four, five, one take on, on weightlifting? So my four, five, one take is the weights that you see in my videos that are in my home office in the, uh, the converted garage in the back. I, uh, it's like, um, artwork. Uh, so, you know, but a lot cheaper. <laughs> it's something that other men predominantly come along and they'll look at and they'll grunt and nod approvingly and they'll ask how much can you bench and you, you throw out a figure that you think is respectable and uh, then you sort of like kick the tires on it a bit and, and then you walk away. And uh, that's pretty much the entire usage mm. of my, my weight. That's fair. You even have like the padded floor, which is a nice touch. I like that. Yeah, they're, they're, there's those little square jigsaw squares that you uh, join together and put it on the floor so it doesn't mm-hmm. damage the floor with all the, the heavy weights that I'm throwing around. So, so, uh, so yeah. as, as a follow-up question to that, now, what is your, I don't know what the policy over there is, but what, what is your thinking on what can be expensed? Because, you know, if you're doing these videos... And you're making money off of them. And and the weights in the background are sort of part of your set. Is that something you could expense on your taxes or otherwise? Like, what would you, uh, what, what what do you think can be expensed in the weird work that we do? I have no idea, you know. I, I You know, this is why I, so I found it easier to negotiate a really high salary up front as opposed to working out the expenses. <laughs> so I just pay for everything out of pocket. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, you know, it's tax season over here. So I've got to figure out what, uh, like, obvious, yeah. obviously, right off my iPhone. That's that's a straight up expense right there. But like, you know, like, like I'm I'm not on a reality TV show, but I have to imagine, like, if you're the Kardashians, basically every haircut you get is a tax write off, right? Like any product that goes into like making you look good has to be part of your business, and you could write it off. And so there's that line for us, uh, you know, thought leaders and people who are in public, like, like, where is that? Like, if I if I got to buy a, a snazzy sports jacket, because I'm going to be talking to business people, is that uh, is that a, is that expensable? Or, you know, write offable on the taxes or what the deal is? So all right, anyways. Yeah. So why why do they call it the cyber? How did that happen? I have no idea. And <laughs> sorry, I, 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 I came across really surprised there or offended. Um, no, no, that's my, that's, that's my position. Every time I hear that, every time I hear the cyber, I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. I am no longer listening, but I can't do that because it's genuinely the term that's used. It is. It's really weird because, um, you, you, you probably remember back in the old chat day, cyber used to mean something really, really different. Um, or maybe you don't, maybe it's different up in, uh, up in your part of the world. But, um, and and it just came recently. It's just so so the whole field has been. It was like IT security, uh, data security, information security, and information security is my preferred sort of like terminology. But um, I've begrudgingly have have had to adopt cyber to a large degree. And I think this is a U.S. government thing. I, I, I believe yeah. it, if I'm not wrong, it, it sort of started from from there, and that's it. Just sort of like spread out everywhere. But I, I don't like the cyber just just as a phrase because it implies it's only technology and protecting information or data isn't just a technology issue. Mm. It's 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 a lot broader than that. Now, that makes sense. Um, that so, makes sense. yeah, I don't I, I don't like it. But then again, I, I, I don't think there's any point in fighting it. So if that's what Joe Average understands, then I'll roll with it. <laughs> The cyber it is. All right. So you do a lot of videos. And there was, there was a point in my career where I, uh, 
I say this very intentionally had to do videos and, uh, you know, uh, I, I was lucky enough to get like a gigantic, uh, what did, what did Dell call their, their high end systems, whatever their, their high end system is that has lots of horsepower. And it was great. This is like 2007 and 2008. Uh, and you know, I went through a lot of editors and, uh, you do a lot of videos. So what is your position? I don't know what they call it, call it nowadays, but what's up with iMovie? Oh, right. So, yeah. So I started with iMovie because I was on a Mac and it was free. And then I upgraded to Final Cut Pro mm. uh, on the Mac, uh, which uh, in its – so I was the typical target case for the Final Cut Pro 10, in which they wanted to entice people from iMovie to jump onto Final Cut Pro. And it was a very similar sort of like interface and it was very easy to use and it was simple. Um, the hardcore, um, sort of like editors on the Mac that were using Final Cut Pro up to seven, I think they were really offended because they were like, you've dumbed it down. You've removed mm. some key features that I needed. And so that a lot of them jumped ship and went on to Premiere Pro on, on a PC. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I think that's it. I mean, it, but in fairness, I mean, Mac has, they, they have like added a lot more features into Final Cut Pro again. Uh, it's just what I'm familiar with. So I'm not a power user by, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um, so, um, so it works fine for me. And I think there's a lot of like casual, um, sort of YouTubers for, for whom it's, it's, it's absolutely perfect. Maybe not so much on the professional end. Range, yeah. yeah. I was talking with someone about, uh, editing podcasts yesterday, whatever, sometime this week. And, uh, I use this editor called Hindenburg, which is, uh, it's remarkable in the sense that it's built for voice audio editing. And and I, I don't think video editing so much has this problem, but like, I don't know if you've looked at audio editing stuff, but like pretty much all of it is oriented around music, which is not useful for conversations. <laughs> and so like, at least, at least in video, I mean, there's all these like funny terms that I guess are inherited from back when it was like, analog like film like i have to imagine ripple like editing is based on film stuff or something but it is it's kind of like you're saying once you uh, once you understand the keys and how to do like the five things you ever do with videos it's hard to leave the uh the editor that you have but all right so that's good uh, and so so i was thinking about this next one as i have the you know always at my desk i have the most recent like two or three things i fidget with and and so you know you go to a conference and they give out swag and why do you think they put like put flashlights on everything? Um, you so so here's here's my my take on it. So Alien Vault are, are famous for giving out their sunglasses which have flashy lights on it, and this isn't the official reason, but I think it should be because it it, it takes away the embarrassment of someone asking for for the swag because everyone then comes up and says, "Oh, can I have your glasses?" And then they quickly add on, oh, my kids will love it. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> so, so, so it takes away the stigma of someone saying, I really like them. Can I have them? You, if you put flashing lights on it, you can say, I'm taking it for the kids. Mm, that's, that's a good answer. All right. So last one. You mentioned this a little earlier. Webinars. Are webinars good, bad? Do you like participating in them? How would you improve them? What's, what's, your, what's your deal with webinars? What's my deal with webinars? I really don't like participating in webinars. I have to do a lot of them. <laughs> I have to do them as an analyst and I have to do them now every now and then. I just think a lot of the times they're, 
I don't know. I don't want to sound like a snob or anything, but I think that a lot of times they're, they're poorly produced. Um, it's, 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 it's very easy to do, but, mm. uh, I, you know, when it comes to presenting data and I'm quite a fan of this, it's, I suppose it's why I, I gravitate towards the video so much because you can record something and then you've got all the tools at your disposal to edit it, to make it look good and consumable. Yeah. Uh, so you can color grade it, you can add sound effects, you can add graphics, you can cut out all the ums and ahs or all the bits that aren't visually appealing and what have you. Um, I, I think in technology as a whole, uh, we're not very good at presenting information a lot of the times, uh, or we don't tailor the information for the medium that it's intended for. So someone will take a white paper and they will kind of like build slides around it and read out that white paper with some slides at a conference. And then they'll take those same slides and deliver them on a webinar. And then they'll take the same script and, you know, post it as a blog. Um, I think it, it, it needs to be tailored for, for the meet. Yeah. 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 Webinars are a perennially weird topic because like for all the reasons you said, cause it's a strange medium, but like having, as I'm sure you see, having participated in webinars, they drive a lot of audience. Like, and it's not just like lead gen where someone gets an email, like in all the systems nowadays, you can see the live viewership, like people sitting there watching. So it's like, there is a proven audience for it, but man, it's just such a, I hate that format too. <laughs> yeah. And, and like... I guess maybe the audience likes it because they keep showing up, but I don't really know of anyone who likes webinars. Like maybe, maybe you're a growth hacking person who like is getting metriced on how many emails they get and how they funnel out and stuff. Like maybe they like it just because people show up, but like it's, it's very rare that people like it. And then also to that point, I feel like, especially as an analyst, you often get involved in a conversation where it's like, we want to do a different type of webinar and we want to, uh, you know, we want to make this more casual and not the usual type. And then you just end up presenting slides usually. But yeah. it is, uh, it's a befuddling format. It is. It, it's, I mean, I, I think that visually the only thing that compares to a webinar is a panel discussion and a conference, which mm. uh, again, I hardly, I, I think that I can count on one finger the number of good or engaging panel discussions I've seen at, at conferences. That's true. Well, speaking of engaging conversations, this has been another episode of Software Defined Interviews, which you can find over at softwaredefinedinterviews.com. Now, as we record these ahead of time, I have no idea what number it is, so I couldn't tell you where to go precisely look up the show notes, but just go to softwaredefinedinterviews.com or if you're using Overcast or I think the podcasting app or one of your finer podcast listening apps, you can just open the notes and look at all the show notes or get a link to the actual episode. Uh, and, you know, if you're interested, we got some T-shirts. They're now 20% off because apparently our listeners are mildly cheap and they didn't want to pay full price. But I'll put a little uh, the, the show code for that. I think it's SDKSFG if you want to uh, get a 20% off thing for, for a T-shirt. And you can find a link to that. You guessed it at softwaredefinedinterviews.com. There's also a Slack channel that you can join, which is surprisingly active for uh for for a podcast of people talking with each other and uh trading information it's not just us promoting our own things so yourself if people want to uh follow you around in a non-creepy way look up more information see these videos of yours where should they go uh the best place is to go to my website my personal website which has got everything on there which is uh j the number four v for victor v for victor 
the number four, dfordelta.com. So that's j4vv4d.com. It was, it was only in doing my, my little prep for this episode that I realized those fours are like the old hacker thing for an A. That's, that's good stuff and, and, you know, brilliant on me to uh, take this long <laughs> to realize that. But I, I always wondered why there were fours in there, and, and now I know. I just needed to uh, remember my old BBS days, and, and it yeah. all came back in a rush. Well, great. Well, uh, thanks for being on, and uh, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Is it, is, is it offensive to talk about Canadians? Should I edit that out, or is that fine? Um, I don't know. I'm not a Canadian, <laughs> but I'm impartial. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll pick back up. I'll, I'll ask you to introduce yourself.